Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to your weekly Corner Spatey. It is myself, Nick, and I'm joined today with special guest Matt Broomfield, who is a freelance journalist uh, dealing primarily with uh, Kurdish activism, Kurdish groups, uh, and also in a general aspect, I guess, the left in Turkey, but uh, more specifically within, within um, you know, Kurdish groups, Kurdistan. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And so um, for those who have been more or less completely living under a rock, this is, I, I guess I'm going to say this is like part two of us covering the Turkish elections, even though this part is maybe not so directly connected to the elections. But um, I wanted to have you on uh, specifically because of your uh, work and uh, uh, and and. Uh, there's an article that actually that, that that you recently wrote for Jacobin, just kind of outlining the sense of the Turkish elections. Uh, but we're here with Matt today to talk about the situation of the Turkish left, which we, um, you know, have we've talked about in the past about about Kurdistan and such and such with uh, guests like Kerem. I'll link that below uh, if you want to listen back to that episode from a few years ago. Um, but I thought it'd be a maybe like arbitrarily just start with Gezi and what the trajectory then of the of of the Turkish left has kind of been from outs, you know, from from someone like myself outside looking in. Um, if we take Gezi and kind of move to them, we are now what has then been the, you know, in your briefest summary, if you will, of of this almost kind of decade of uh, this massive turning point in the Turkish left. And also, I mean, and, and, and the reaction then too from the, uh, you know, the Erdogan government. Yeah, of course. Well, yeah, I mean, I think um, Gezi Park, so when we say Gezi, we're talking about these Gezi Park protests that people listening will probably remember in a similar breath to a similar kind of spirit and time um, a little bit later to some of the Occupy movements um, in the West. Um, and it was marked by some of the same characteristics of those protests, sort of in terms of the style and method of protest, but also was very different because this is Turkey we're talking about, um, and Turkey is kind of located quite differently. Um, so I think for me in general, um, you know, kind of the interesting thing about the situation in Turkey, or one of the interesting things, is that it's has this pivotal role in, in several senses, geographically, geostrategically, politically, also in the sense that it's, not an authoritarian regime. Um, it's not a total dictatorship, but it very much looks like one. But also, there is room for dissent, and there is room, also, as we'll talk about today, for some kind of action in the parliament. But then, nor can you say that it's a parliamentary democracy in any meaningful sense. So, yeah, so, yeah, Daisy Park protests. Just in case people aren't aware, sort of, you started as a yeah, protest over land rights and uh, the usage of this this place, Gezi Park. Um, and this uh, this space yeah, was occupied because the Turkish government wanted to turn it um, uh, to to privatise it and, and concrete it over essentially. Um, but I think yeah, what kind of more probably concerns if we're looking at the period post Gezi is you know, as these things do, the movement grew. Um, some uh, external groups um, got involved with it to different degrees. Um, that movement then kind of fizzled and died. But then there came, um, yeah, an authoritarian response uh, from the Turkish government. So there's maybe only two points I would mention now about what happened or One is about the relationship between the Turkish left in general and the Kurdish movement. And uh, one is, yeah, about the Turkish government uh, kind of cracked down in response to that. So, yeah, Gezi was a, came at this kind of complicated moment where a lot of people were angry and taken to the streets. We're not kind of really feeling represented by mainstream politics in Turkey. Um, partly because of that, then it also came at a time of kind of rising interest in and support for the Kurdish movement, um, which represents the only kind of major mass organized, serious leftist progressive force in, in Turkey today and, and has done for some time. Um, and so then there were questions coming out of Gezi around, you know, for all of you people in Turkey, maybe because they uh, were wary of the Kurds because they heard they're all terrorists they've been told by the government maybe because they were aware they were coming from a more anarchist background for example in some cases and you know the Kurds also have their political parties legal and illegal parties and people were concerned about working with them and uh, then also the Kurdish movement was unsure about whether how much it should take steps to directly support and be seen to be supporting this this movement so there was a kind of questions in the air about you know do we work with 
the coalition-led opposition bloc, either in the parliament or more generally, do we support them? So these ideas were kind of going around at the time of Gezi, as you can imagine, in the camp, in the discussions and in the media afterwards. Um, and then so that's kind of one side of what was in the air as people that kind of left Gezi Park and moved on and looked for new avenues to continue their political organising. But then sort of Gezi Park sort of, if you will, heralded the start of this, this era, which, you know, has been going on um, yeah, for, for over a decade now, but of increasing authoritarianism and increasing crackdowns um, by the Erdogan regime. Um, so that, yeah, came out of Gezi Park and then more so, as we'll probably talk about later on, in response to the collapse of peace talks with the militant wing of the Kurdish movement in 2015, severe civil unrest um, amounting to a small civil war um, in southern Turkey um, in 2015-2016, and then the failed coup attempt in 2016. And Gezi kind of heralded the beginning of this era. It, I think, kind of showed to Erdogan where he stood. Um, it, we saw there, you know, sort of the strengthening of this anti-Western rhetoric, which had been deploying for a long time, a more clear authoritarianism and opposition to what he would describe as liberal values, Western values, LGBT, minority rights, all these other words which are anathema uh, to a lot of people in Turkey as elsewhere. And he kind of heralded in this era of increasing authoritarianism and repression of different forms of um, position in Turkey. Because there's a there's at least in Germany, for example, there's a there's kind of this general consensus that then that the like leftist groups for the most part have this general assumption that then that um at least here, that the, that the Kurdish movements, not just assumption, I mean, the Kurdish movements fit very well within the German anarchist, you know, communist, whatever sort of movements that there are. There is a level of solidarity then with that, of course, to whether it be the various, you know, militias that then I think people are aware of, like the YPG, YPJ. There's also then just a general sense of defend Rojava. You'll see that stuff everywhere. But how then um, you mentioned that then there's just uh, Gazy kind of this like the left just kind of has this moment that everyone sees of this this mix of everything. How well then do uh, uh, do they mix together in Turkey or like what is the reaction then uh, uh, of, you know, you know, do, uh, you know, with the Kurdish movements, as you mentioned before, of there has been a, a very long history in Turkey of of the uh, government or, you know, government adjacent people or just, you know, they, a, a general resentment to these groups, whether it be politically, racially and such like that. Um, how did then that these 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 Kurdish leftist groups kind of meld within that of the greater left in Turkey or what is then how does then. Um, them coming to the forefront within all these activist groups um, to Europe, what does then their reality look like actually then on the ground compared to how we see it? At least I know that we put a lot of focus in Germany within the German left on Kurdistan. um, But what is their visibility then, uh, uh, at least in this period of time? How is it transitioning, especially with you mentioned a civil war that then happens uh, and such, that Turkey... I, 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 you know the, the the complexities of of that. I'm we're not even going to get into, but um, just simply in the sense that then the, the the Turkish government still today is is fighting against uh, groups in northern Syria that then are still connected in some regard, more or less. Yeah. So I think I think the you know, sort of Gezi and, and the period around Gezi. So yeah, again, we're talking about like 2013. Um, that was Gezi, and then that kind of couple of years after they did. For some people in Turkey, certainly for, um, yeah, I think a lot of kind of liberal, maybe left-leaning people who live in the, as they would say, more Europeanized, um, perhaps, uh, cities in, in the west of Turkey, um, it did bring up the kind of the Kurdish movement and their possible role in pushing for a more progressive solution for Turkey. And, you know, the Kurdish movement did win friends and supporters then. Um, and perhaps, again, also for those people who were able to see through the, the kind of government's propaganda and position on what's happening at that time um, in northern Syria, so the Turkish government on the one hand offering tacit support to ISIS um, and enabling them to attack the Syrian Kurds, um, and on the other hand, um, as people will probably be aware, particularly in Germany, the resistance against ISIS that was led by, by the Syrian Kurdish forces, which you mentioned. So it did... This moment did, you know, kind of push um, for some people, you know, the, the Kurdish question, the idea that the Kurds have a, you know, a sort of progressive role to play became more present. This was also happening at a time, as I say, when there was a ceasefire between the militant wing of the Kurdish movement, so the Kurdistan Workers' Party or PKK, and the Turkish government. Um, so there was perhaps more of a sense that, okay, I mean, 
we can work we can work together and subsequently in elections um the legal wing at that time legal wing of the kurdish movement as it were the legal pro-kurdish party the people's democratic party or hdp made gains um in the parliament so they, you know there was something there but uh, as we were saying more than that i think how the post gezi period has to be characterized is in terms of the crackdown um, and in terms of uh, a violent response and that, I think, polarised. Um, you know, also, um, most ordinary Turkish people, ordinary Turkish voters against Kurds because, yeah, well, whatever they thought about what's happening in northern Syria, they might have believed the government's line on that. And more so as fighting broke out between sort of Kurdish youth uh, militias, poorly armed, if armed at all, and the Turkish armed forces in southern Turkey that, Pushed yeah further um, opposition um, to the Kurdish cause, and Erdogan you know, in those ten years has very much made political hay from the sense that the Kurds are the enemy within, that Turkey is being stabled by terror, and so on and so on. And I think, as you as we saw in the recent ele- election results, then there was a kind of, there was a kind of hope and a sense among the Kurdish people that you know they have more visibility and more of a role to play, and people are willing to enter into some kind of dialogue with them. In theory, but in practice, um, when it comes to the hard negotiations with other political forces in Turkey or when it comes to voters uh, to turning out and uh, supporting a party which has even been seen to be speaking with the Kurds in any way, then um, there's still a long way to go. Oh, I, yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the most vivid image that I can think of is when... Um uh, who was Turkey's, uh, uh, it was either the interior minister or the foreign minister was meeting with members of the, I think it was representatives from the HDP, and just yelling at them, pointing at them, being like, you're terrorists, you're terrorists, you're terrorists, you're terrorists. You know, I mean, there is there is that, obviously, I think that we see the, the you know, just open, just, you know, the attitude of the government is, is exactly that, you know, that then for a lot of people that... Uh, yeah, it is just clear, you know, the PKK is, you know, all of this Kurdish left. Um, but how then, I mean, aside, like, like how then as uh, you mentioned crackdowns, you mentioned the sense of like the government, uh, you know, acting upon them, this, how is, how is the, how have the tactics changed over time? You know, we've mentioned, you've mentioned previously about how Gezi is the period where then we see Turkey transform more into what people would call an authoritarian state or whatever um but what do then we see then as like as tactics within the thing that the erdogan government starts using um particularly targeting kurdish groups but then also leftist groups and kind of lumping them into this because we've now seen during the election it was funny to see erdogan i mean not funny but you know it's a little bit ridiculous seeing erdogan calling all of his support you know any anyone who did wasn't against him oh they're gay they're this they're that they're that which seems like childish insults however erdogan's been notorious for calling his political opponents whether it be a gulenist or whether it be a terrorist or whether it be this or whether it be that he's not shy of insults however insults are one thing. Um, what have been the actual political repressions and how have they developed over time against these groups um, uh, yeah. appeared and what have they looked like? So I think yeah, it's kind of yeah, a couple of things to say. I mean, so firstly, what, yeah, what I would say is I think it's always worth remembering about this period that we're talking about now. That, you know, what it shows is that it's not just a, a sort of a foregone assumption that the, the Kurds will always be forever polarised with um, the Turkish government. You know, it can't feel like that. It certainly felt like that in the days after this election. But what this this period does show us is that, you know, there has been room for peace talks and it's possible it can happen again. And there's room also for some, at least, um, people um, in Turkey to, to hear that message and to cut through the propaganda. So that should... Um, kind of be remembered. Um, but yeah, as you say, particularly uh, following this period, it's become much harder than it ever was for any progressive voice to have a hearing in Turkey. Even, even in the most recent election, the sort of liberal Kemalist main opposition candidate, Kılıçdaroğlu, um, got about, well, again, got about 6,000% more coverage on uh, state television than he did. So even for this pretty toast. um very limited um, uh, alternative vision for Turkey. It's pretty hard to get your voice heard and all the more so for the Kurds. And I think, yeah, kind of the main factor that I think wants to be spoken about here is that the, cause of the issue with the terror label is kind of not just as it kind of sometimes is that there are, uh, you know, good 
progressive movements and bad progressive movements in Turkey that, you know, there's okay, there's the PKK on the one hand and they're fighting a guerrilla war and that's bad, but there are reasonable parliamentary progressive um, forces um, um, pushing for these things as well. But the, the, the fact of what Turkey is doing on the one end of um, completely refusing any peace talks, any dialogue, any engagement with the PKK, and then saying that any particularly go to activism, but as you, as you mentioned, sort of anything in any civil society sphere, speaking about women's rights, speaking about gay rights, speaking about other minorities' rights, all that's all basically PKK terrorism as well. As you see in this kind of farcical thing, which um, Erdogan likes to do of saying, for example, we're intervening in Syria to attack the PKK ISIS terrorists, as though these two groups, it's not the former group, which completely obliterated the latter group. You know, it's, it's completely insane. And what that then does is it can completely shuts down any possibility to to engage with Turkey on, you know, more, even, you know, on on the more kind of um, NGO um, side of things, you know, makes it difficult to operate as a lawyer, makes it difficult to have a woman's rights NGO, makes it difficult to speak about freedom of the press. For example, last year, then Turkey arrested the head of the the state medical organization um, for mentioning um, some issues around the, around the, the Kurdish conflict. And, you know, she, she was like, you know, I don't, I don't particularly care, as it were. She was almost saying, I'm not a political person, I'm a doctor. But even this very limited engagement that she was making was, that's it, you know, you're a terrorist, you're going to be arrested. So when that happens, that has a couple of implications. But of course, your one is that it leaves... Um, uh, people who are angry with the Turkish state with no, but with no choice but to pursue a more militant angle. So, you know, Turkey is kind of hampering itself in a sense with this rhetoric. But um, this is the, ta- the path and the tactics that the Erdogan government has followed. And, yeah, I mean, you asked about what are the tactics looking at now. And I suppose, yeah, right now, um, uh, the other thing to mention, along with, you know, those kind of increasing hollowing out the civil society sphere, the catastrophic drop of Turkey through the world press freedom, Rankings, they're now in the bottom 20. Um, Turkey has, I think, more people jailed on political charges than possibly any other country in the world, among the world's highest jailers of journalists and so on and so on. And along with that, attacks on the um, parliamentary um, Kurdish-led progressive opposition um, who get the worst of it. But then, yeah, also, you know, you mentioned other other leftist groups certainly will suffer the same treatment, but even, as we say, you know, more liberal groups, reformers, um, are affected by by the Kurdish issue and by Turkey's treatment of these groups. How did uh, just out of curiosity, then, because you, you you touched briefly then on to the uh, on on onto like um, the the uh, whether it be so I don't remember if it was the question of this one or the previous one about the the opposition and their point uh, uh, and, and their kind of milk toast take on all this, but uh, Erdogan also too, if I'm not mistaken, was lobbying. Uh, those type of insults and such as that CHP, a party who historically is quite mixed within their, you know, uh, uh, um, not uh, obviously not support of the Kurdish left, obviously far more complex, but of, um, you know, even uh, certain more conservative wings that have a much more, um, you know, that that um, I can just think of offhand how the CHP's position on things like the Armenian genocide is uh you know not much different uh if i'm not mistaken than that of erdogan's that there are some very conservative wings within this um kilish also as well is not particularly a left-wing figure if i'm not mistaken as well in the country um how did then like erdogan still if i'm not mistaken lobbed these insults though continuously at moderates as well of being like oh you're teamed up with these uh um you know terrorists and such um did that end up like being like does that tactic actually work i guess i know that that sounds very silly in the sense that we can see the reality of these political uh prisoners that then uh even as silly as it has become that then financial reporters being arrested for just reporting on the you know, economic situation and being arrested for oh you're doing currency manipulation this and that and that you know um do um like do 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 the insults actually or like do does does the rhetoric actually get somewhere with the general public? Do people actually are they swayed by it? Um does it actually hurt the left or is it much more so that then that the rhetoric doesn't actually matter? The the actions of the state are far more, you know, overreaching or the things that then actually um, you know, like uh if 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 you kind of see what I'm asking in the sense of that then 
Yeah, well, I think I think you said certainly the rhetoric is effective, and perhaps I mean perhaps sort of the crucial issue here is that yes, it does um, you know have an impact on um, average Turkish voters on Turkish voters, some of them anyway, as we saw in the elections. Um, but even more than that, it also has an impact on the approach of the yeah the main opposition party, the CHP or JHP itself, for example. You know, and, it, and it's kind of effective in that way. You know, not only as a pure electoral strategy, um, but in terms of forcing the this main opposition party in, into positions which are, you know, not all that different or on some issues possibly more authoritarian and aggressive than those of those of the Erdogan regime. Um so yeah, as you, as, as we kind of saw in the in the run up to this election, um you know, as you as your you know, listeners might be aware, then this opposition candidate Klitschteroglu um, made some kind of gestures towards um, minority inclusion, accused um, Erdogan of weaponizing the um, Kurdish issue, but that was all, it was all kind of quite uh, thin, quite late in the day, and, you know, that, that was also a ploy in, in its own right, um, and comes on the back of, you know, the, um, his party has backed um, Turkey's you know, military actions against the Kurds in Rojava, and Northern Syria has backed their oppression of the Kurdish-led parliamentary opposition or remained silent on, you know, crucial issues, um, leading Kurdish figures being jailed and so on, and so... It was always quite. It was always quite thin. Even then, you had you know, the hard right, um, really hard right, you know, further to the right of Erdogan, um, parties in coalition with that main opposition party, saying we're absolutely not going to allow any representation from the, the Kurdish parliamentary party at all, even if we get into government, and actually trying to leave the coalition in response to them even being in talks, and then immediately following to the result on Sunday, where, as people may be aware, Erdogan didn't completely win, but got into a commanding position. Um, for the runoff election, which will happen um, on Sunday, 28th May, that Kalitschteroglu, the opposition candidate, has kind of immediately and drastically yeah. put into the right in, in his rhetoric. But, you know, that's always been, um, you know, it, it, that's always been un- underlying their approach and in their kind of roadmap, what they were offering to the, the Turkish voters about, you know, um, we're going to restore parliamentary democracy, we're going to restore rule of law. You know, yeah, that would have been true to some extent, but they were careful not to mention at all the word Kurd or, or the Kurdish issue. So, um, you know, yes, um, clear, clearly it is effective. Um, and, I, and I think that is partially maybe one reason why the results in the initial round of the elections were less positive um, in terms of the opposition potentially unseating Erdogan than most people had predicted, um, myself included, insofar as that there was, you know, there are people who perhaps wouldn't, admit to being against um, Klitschroglu, perhaps on that issue, or perhaps on the fact of him admitting he was a part of the Alevi minority, but were unwilling to vote for him for that reason. So yes, it certainly does effective in the sense of having an effect. Um, just uh, for for the listener, the, this episode is coming out actually after the second round of the elections. But um, So if it sounds like we're talking in the past, we are. Uh, this is in between both elections. Uh, but nonetheless, I don't think the situation really differs much depending on where we're going to be in the week after the election anyway. But uh, just so the listener knows that we're recording this in the weird in-between period. Um, so... Another such another like kind of period that I wanted to also address as well that I obviously got a lot of international coverage too was uh, the coup against the uh, Erdogan government, and how does this also then shape the formation? I mean, we obviously then see Erdogan go on his on his on his tirade against the Gulenists, aka his former best friend or whatever that whole drama was. But obviously, then we see then you know Erdogan's emergency powers, and we see this 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 this, this you know change. Uh, drastically, and uh, how does then the left? I mean, because we're talking about then how the government has reacted. Obviously, the government accepts these 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 uh, emergency powers. How does the left then reorganize itself on the ground then, or the Kurdish left start reorganizing itself? Because after the, I mean, you know, there is a clear you know defining point that Erdogan gives himself these emergency powers, and we see then kind of the behavior of the state of Turkey changed quite drastically. I mean, Erdogan was always kind of, you know, a, a, uh, yeah, a conservative right wing figure had very, you know, pretty standard run of the mill, conservative quasi authoritarian tendencies. But as you mentioned before, journalists, this and that, and that, um, we see, 
you know, uh, uh, arrests and and pressure being put on. So how does the react like how do activists and, the, you know, a, a Kurdish left groups and such like that on the ground start, um, you know, how do they have to like reposition themselves within this new sphere of 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 power that drastically changes kind of before their eyes after a, a you know, an a, a apparent attempted coup? Uh, from from the military that I mean, I have still vivid memories of that, you know, that 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 news coverage of. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, so I think, yeah, as you say, you know, this coup um, kind of without going into whatever, who exactly yeah, was behind yeah. it or what the hell happened there, <laughs> um, which is a discussion for for another time. But, um, you know, there, there was some attempts to um, challenge the Erdogan government. And yeah, as you say, this, you know, this was not. A moment, you know, even less so than Gezi Park, this wasn't, you know, a kind of moment where the, the sort of coach led opposition was ever thinking of, you know, launching some kind of a taking advantage of this breacher in the Turkish political consensus, you know, this kind of night of madness to, to, to you know, to respond and try and, try and organise something themselves. And the fallout from that was you know, much more defined by this um, crackdown on the... Um, Yes, on the civil society sphere, which we've spoken about already, I think kind of how this then affected the part of how this then affected the um, coach opposition was to do with it contributing to Turkey's uh, sort of international realignment and then increasing kind of antagonism towards um, America to, from Erdogan on some subjects, not on others, and increasing kind of isolationism, increasing sort of paranoia. Um, and an increasing sort of sense of, you know, Tur- Turkey must go its own way and he himself must, you know, um, defend his his own interests and so on. And, you know, and that had different ramifications. But, yeah, I think, yeah, it kind of resulted in this, yeah, increasing realignment of, um, to, yeah, Turkish society and, and Turkish um, geostrategy, which benefited, um, has benefited, I think, to some extent, um, the, the, the Kurdish-led opposition um, insofar as Turkey's polarisation with uh, the West on some issues has allowed them room to kind of negotiate between the two um, and to sort of survive, as it were, in the cracks um, of this um, of, of this power block, um, much as Turkey has in its own way between uh, West and East. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, sort of overall then, as you said, um, the years since then have been marked by increasing attacks not only on the coach movement at home but also uh, across the borders and not only either in um in Mujar, which is spoken about already but something which is also forgotten often is the increasing attacks um quite devastating attacks happening against northern iraq um so we had the um yeah this peace process we spoke about collapsed um yeah around the, yeah like around the time of the coup let's say um and uh, as part of that um, the militant wing had withdrawn into northern Iraq um, and had been open to negotiate and achieve various concessions on that basis. But then instead, what we saw um, following this new kind of era um, heralded by the coup was increasing militarization and, uh, you know, attacks um, outside the Turkish borders to um, not only target the Kurds in Syria, but also in northern Iraq. And this is the uh, the PKK that you're talking about, correct? Yes, that's right. Okay, yeah. Um, you're mentioning too, also then the international, like how Turkey has also expanded its influence then outside of its borders. Uh, one of the most interesting things I think that has come up recently, where Turkey has been a major, I don't know if it's actually that that that, that they've been a major like game changer or playmaker, or whatever sports term you want to use, because we love using sports terms to describe politics uh, has been the recent like NATO accessions of Sweden and Finland uh, where with uh, Sweden, the Turkish government specifically uh, had a bone to pick about the large Kurdish population that then is in there in that country. And pretty much if I'm not mistaken, demanded lists of people to be extradited uh, in order for them to join NATO along with other negotiations in terms of that, then they had an arms uh, uh, embargo to Turkey as well. Um, and other prerequisites that then that uh, uh, Sweden like kind of gave up immediately um, in order to join NATO. But how, um, how, like what are then uh, like other 
Like how how has Turkey been, or the Erdogan government, I guess, also been then using this influence internationally in order to then garner support for then this big fight against terrorism, or whatever they call it? Uh, because that's, I mean, the most I would say the most notable one in the most recent past. Because you know, NATO accession has been a big deal the last year with the Russia-Ukraine war, um, but also here in Germany too. I mean, there's been like the Turkish government has actually used their influence quite a lot. To to target uh, people within these groups outside of the country. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, there's yeah, I think yeah, again, there's a couple of issues here, but um, the, we I mean, yeah, with I think yeah, the the NATO question that you raised, it kind of there's kind of two levels, yeah. two, two sort of two levels of issue. You know, one is the extent to which Turkey is quite brazenly able to, um, well, maybe like, there's kind of three levels, I suppose. You know, firstly, there's the question for even if you're coming at this issue from a purely kind of, yes, NATO is the best thing ever to happen and a big uh, unity of Western peace and love. Um, even from that perspective, Turkey is clearly acting in a very chaotic, very destructive way as Erdogan is trying to you know, cut deals with Putin on the one hand and then going back to Washington and seeking concessions on the other. So even purely from that perspective, there are issues with the way that Turkey's acting. And I think some people in the West recognize that, uh, but for unable to do anything about that. I mean, you know, other state, state leaders in the West recognised that, but felt they had to bow to Turkey's demands. Secondly, um, then, of course, as you said, Turkey has been able to demand, yeah, demand these kind of absurd concessions. So, you know, yeah, as you said, giving lists of people to extradite. Um, some of, for example, uh, famously the Swedish-Kurdish MP, who's not from Turkey, she's not a Turkish citizen, they wanted her to be demanded, and Turkey felt they were within their rights to demand her extradition to Turkey. Um, and you are the various laundry lists of demands, you know, so stopping sort of very limited humanitarian support these countries give to Rojava, um, stopping allowing them to even have meetings and discussions there. Again, which goes back to what we were speaking about earlier, this aim to kind of criminalise any engagement whatsoever, humanitarian, diplomatic and so on, um, with, with the Kurdish movement, um, and seeking perhaps a green light for further crackdowns on the Kurds at home and attacks abroad. So then there is also this, there's a kind of, you know, sort of a, a humanitarian question of, you know, what, what is the cost of, you know, what can Turkey demand? Can it get away with doing what it wants simply because it's in NATO? And then finally, I think, yeah, there is also the sort of broad perspective, which again is one that the um, uh, Kurdish movement would put forward that this, um, System of uh, you know to yeah to um, sort of state-backed um, power blocks built on the strength of states and built particularly at the thin end of the wedge on the strength of authoritarian states um, is um, demonstrates the the failings of this whole system and its inability um, as we have seen now to prevent war and that's you know that's what representatives of the Kurdish movement would say um, and that you know it's not just so we have to give Turkey these concessions as it so happens, so that they, we can rely on them to stick with us to fight against Russia, A, because that's not particularly happening in Turkey's position and the whole thing is very ambiguous, but also B, the issue is more profound and since, you know, from 1945, um, at least uh, until, well, 1949, um, until the present day, then um, Turkey has had to be authoritarian and um, has needed to play this role as the kind of sharp end, the strong end of um, NATO response to the East, um, and so needs to be authoritarian, and this makes it very difficult to push for a more progressive, um, decentralized solution in Turkey. With the mention of then, once again, Rojava, I think, I mean, we might as well just talk about then the the, the situation uh, there as well, because uh, we, um, yeah, I mean, we've, we've, we've talked about that Turkey has obviously intensified their military campaigns, uh, whether it be in the east of its own country, in Iraq, in Syria. Um, what is then still, I mean, because Rojava got, of course, a lot of attention, uh, especially in the battle uh, against uh, ISIS and stuff like that. It was definitely uh, one of the um, most vivid and hopeful, I think, images that the left has had in a while internationally of an actual like living project. I mean, the realities of it on the ground were always ever changing, of course, because of this, the, 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 the situation on the ground. But how, how has then Rojava, because we you know we've mentioned it in a name so many times, it, um, how is it then also transitioned to under this increasing pressure from 
the Turkish government, like militarily. And also Turkey is a NATO member. And there is a lot of complexities here as well that then that you mentioned, too, that there is, um, you know, aid coming from other countries as well, whether it be humanitarian, you know, whether it be some military help, this and that and that. Um, We're now here sitting in 2023. Uh, it is not the same scenario as, say, oh, I don't know, what, 2017, I think, was when it was like, at it's, it's I mean, you know, whatever, however many years ago. I'm very bad with dates, but, uh, yeah. it you know, it's, uh, there is, um, how, how, have, how, how have then, uh, how has Rojava then, then, then continuously then been changing under this pressure? Yeah. Well, I mean, again, yeah, maybe I'll just begin by kind of sounding more hopeful note before I speak about course, um, yeah. Turkey's strategy um, against the region today. Yeah, I was there um, three and a half years ago now when Turkey launched its last ground invasion. People will probably remember when Donald Trump said he was going to pull the troops out and there was, yeah, a sort of full-scale military operation. I mean, at that time, there was a kind of a lot of, again, a lot of prognoses from, I don't know, Western analysts, Western observers, you know, journalists ran out of the region um, and were publishing these weepy op-eds about, you know, the end of the revolution and our assets going to take over and it's all over and, and so on. And that, you know, that actually didn't happen. Um, and yeah, so the, the, this invasion was sort of, was sort of halted through um, yeah, various uh, diplomatic endeavours um, yeah, involving the Kurdish-led administration there. And I think a kind of projected collapse, a projected despair didn't materialise the sort of tensions, internal tensions as well between the regions liberated by from ISIS and the Kurdish majority regions that many people said, you know, this system can't possibly hold together. Their values are too different. Um, five years on now from the war against ISIS has held together. It is kind of working better than anywhere else in Syria with its challenges and with its difficulties as well. And um, the, the sort of direct conflict now is frozen and although that creates a lot of hardships which I'll mention in a moment it has enabled continued efforts to keep building and putting into practice some forms of this progressive vision which the the Kurdish movement offers for decentralization and so on working together now um, with you know what's a majority Arab um, population Um, and that I think is very positive and you know yeah the region it's kind of a little bit less fashionable now but it survives it endures and they're trying their hardest but um, as you mentioned Turkey has been putting the region under yeah increasing pressure yeah particularly I suppose since the war against ISIS and since Erdogan began looking more um, across the Syrian border to bolster its popularity at home Um, and yeah this of course has led as people will probably be aware to Invasion, ethnic cleansing um, of the, most many of the Kurds, um, uh, also Yazidis and Christians. But what is uh, more has been more characterised by a kind of political cleansing, and it, you know some Kurds are able to survive in zones of um, Turkish occupation, mostly old people or those who work for or paid by um, Turkey. But you know anyone who is at all associated with these progressive ideas would seem to have worked with. The administration um, was seemed to be in a civil or military capacity as targeted. So this is one side of things, um, and then Turkey is keeping up pressure um, on uh, the, the still remaining uh, Rojava, the autonomous administration as it's known of north and east Syria. So one aspect of that is through continued invasion threats, and you know from May 2022 last year up until now, we again we saw Turkey. We spoke a bit about how Turkey is able to manipulate its position as this. NATO power to kind of, but it's a kind of ambiguous one to go between Moscow and Washington, and it's been doing that for you know the past, yeah, well, uh, up until the earthquake, so the best part of the year, um, and seeking permission from one or the other because it needs permission from one of these power blocks to launch a military operation. It hasn't been able to get that again for various reasons, but it has been able to keep up um, extreme pressure. Um, the most obvious manifestation of which is a campaign of drone strikes that have been going on. Um, uh, yeah, throughout the past year in particular, so targeting military leaders in the fight against ISIS, targeting um, civil, le- civil society leaders, even, I don't know, a, a poet, actors, um, and infrastructure as well, targeting, yeah, gas, oil structure, but also basic humanitarian infrastructure, power stations, water infrastructure. There is a war in anything, anything but name, um, and is making it extremely difficult to live there, also increasing the economic pressure on the region, throttling the water flow um, into the region, um, all of which is compounded by the region's isolation from the outside world. It doesn't have any direct access at all. Um, currently, to the outside world, is the only border gate 
into Iraqi Kurdistan is currently closed, partially due to Turkish pressure. Uh, there's no official UN aid crossing into the region, um, thanks to the Russians in this instance. Um, so the region, yeah, remains kind of highly isolated, and you know, Turkey's strategy is to, in various political, diplomatic, humanitarian ways, verging on the military to um, promote internal tensions and dissent, and to um, prohibit any kind of positive and constructive efforts to build a more progressive alternative for Syria. Um, how then, uh, you know, kind of coming back to into the sense of, of how this military, uh, uh, this military, uh, uh, um, I always want to call it a spell special military operation, but that's what Putin calls his thing. Um, yeah, Erdogan's special military operation then, uh, what is in the reaction then amongst the other, like, I mean, cause you know, kind of going back and forth in here of like the Kurdish left and the react and then the relationship within the, 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 the left in Turkey. Um, what is then, then that like, so during this intensified period that again, you mentioned that, uh, is still happening. I think that it's, it's very unfortunate that there's very little international coverage of, um, you know, this ongoing, yeah, pretty much a war and not, you know, in every other name, but that, um, uh, uh, how is then? Uh, how is act like? How have other um, groups within Turkey then? Uh, have they tried to rally in support? Has there been some level of solidarity? Has it been difficult? Has has the government kind of, you know, won on their on their you know stamping out the whole terrorism thing? Or is there still like a decent amount of solidarity? Was there ever a decent amount of solidarity? Uh, because I feel that then, like, I mean, maybe this is just because I'm in Germany and this and that and that. But I feel that then that. A lot of the solidarity that, that I always continuously saw, obviously, from Rojava came from, you know, when it was at its, at its most popular, obviously. And now that then it's like kind of where it is currently, um, where do we see then this like what is the transformation of then of of a support, if any, from the greater Turkish left into then this this project that's still ongoing? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think kind of two two points on this. Um so you think the, the sort of apogee and the high point of solidarity in Turkey with the Kurdish cause, um, as you've suggested, came during the time of uh, the war against ISIS, and particularly um, when this war was happening on the on the Turkish border in Kobani and these other Kurdish towns, where people could literally see from their own homes, and they could see the um, Turkish tanks blocking the border to the Kurds. They could see maybe in some instances ISIS being allowed to use that border to launch attacks, and they could witness what was happening. Nonetheless, you know, there was never a time when um, the you know, kind of average um, Turkish voter, I think, would have felt particular sensations of solidarity for or, or support for the, the Kurdish-led projects in northern Syria, but that was the time when, it was almost just a time when it was possible to openly discuss and demonstrate about these things in majority Kurdish regions even of Turkey. But uh, that time, again, was followed by those, yes, uh, protests in support uh, of the Kurds in northern Syria. Um, and as a result of that, there were mass arrests. And so that is actually going on until today. It's known as the Kobani trial of yeah, Kurdish, pro-Kurdish um, political figures in Turkey. So Turkey's here seeking about 10,000 years in jail time um, now for people for participating in protests in support of the war against ISIS, which... Um, I mean, it's one of those things where you read it and you think you misread it the first time because surely it must be um, <laughs> the other way around. But no, that you know, that that's the situation. So yeah, you know, even for and what I want to say about that is you know, even for the Kurds themselves, it's extremely difficult to take any other position on, on this issue now about Turkey's nominal national integrity and so on. And so then that's also bled over. Of course, that also affects you know other smaller groups on the left. But again. This is, I suppose, it's been a key issue where you see the limitations of the the liberal, um, nominally liberal opposition in Turkey. So on these two military operations against the Kurdish-led autonomous regions of northern Syria, uh, Kılıçdaroğlu has both times given his, essentially given his support and not moved to put back parliament and you know, praised the Turkish soldiers um, for, for what they're doing. So, you know, for, uh, whether you're, on the pro-Kurdish left or elsewhere on the left, or whether it's liberal opposition, then no, there's not really any room to openly um, express support for what's happening in um, yeah, for what's happening in northern Syria. Um, that's the reality. Um, I don't want to like speculate too much, um, but 
So let's say we hop into the future. And uh, when this episode comes out, let's say that the hypothetically then theoretically Erdogan were to lose, uh, which, you know, I, uh, I don't want to sound pessimistic now, but it's seeming pretty difficult with the amount of just like election irregularities that are happening and this and that and that. Um, is there then possibility uh, to, you know, move forward then under within a, I mean, as the, the opposition, the greater, you know, the non-Erdogan opposition, do things actually look, I mean, because again, I, 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 again, I, I completely understand in the greater sense that obviously Erdogan is, is a massively, uh, uh, problematic leader. And for a lot of groups, things would drastically change. Uh, you know, uh, I think that then that, uh, there, I, I think it's fair to say that then for some people in Turkey, things would be a little bit different. Uh, this doesn't really look to be the case, though, then for the Kurds, then does it? If then uh, what I'm hearing then from this. So if we come back when this episode comes in in June, uh, comes out in the first week of June, um, it's it seems like there's a lot of uphill battles that then still the like, is there at least more room legally that, that, that they'll be allowed to exist in? Hopefully. I mean, I don't again, speculation is not the thing that I want to do, but um, yeah, well, I mean, I mean, yeah. I, I think as you've identified, yeah, on the one hand, then there's no point in suggesting that, you know, that there is a difference between Erdogan yeah. and Klitschko Blue. A Klitschko Blue government, the Kurdish political representatives have always said, is not going to solve anything overnight, and on some issues it's going to be worse. And, uh, you know, they would, you know, look particularly to their potential return of um, Syrian refugees to Syria, which involve Turkey reaching a deal of, of normalisation potentially with the Assad government. Bad news um, for Rojava and for the autonomous administration in the north of Syria. So they might cite those kind of issues, the lack of a clear perspective for any real resolution to the Kurdish issue. And finally, we might also look at the problem that um, workers are struggling to be elected, who would be aligning more directly and simplistically with America, which then might result in you know more of these concessions in return for being a good boy and being kind of you know NATO's attack dog in the region. Um, all of that being said. It would be a lot better than uh, the alternative which has been offered by Erdogan. And, you know, uh, if Erdogan has been re-elected by the time we hear this, as people expect he will, um, then yes, it's likely that there's not going to be any kind of less of a pause, you know, less of a kind of lacuna. If Kenneth Strogler had wanted to do things differently, I think it would have been, you know, partly to mark a break to show that he's doing things differently, to show that he's focusing on fixing um, the internal problems in Turkey, dealing with the fallout from the earthquake. And so if Erdogan is able to overcome that challenge, of course, he's going to show, no, it's more of the same, more so, it's me now. Maybe this will be the last five years of, uh, of his government's so that he's going to want to consolidate power, look for a successor, um, leave his mark uh, on, Turkish, on Turkish politics. Um, and so, of course, it, it's not good news. But, yeah, you know, speaking to um, activists and politicians on the campaign trail in Turkey, then, you know, the, the Kurdish movement has this and has always had this ability to, you know, they, they have no illusions whatsoever about the, the parliamentary process in Turkey, about what it might offer, um, about their chances of success. They know exactly um, uh, what, what they're up against. So I think, I think of, um, yeah, this, what I was reading this week, you know, this, there's this famous line from Gramsci, you know, which people like to quote, um, uh, pessimism, the pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Uh, but as I was reading, I was reading in the letters, and um, it's actually what he then says is, um, you know, I've, I've kind of gone beyond this mere opposition, and I've synthesised these two ideas into into something new, and the kind of the fact of my pessimism, the fact of my rational pessimism, equips me um, to know that um, to see the situation with clear eye, and that's what gives me an optimism. And I think one can say something similar about the Kurdish movement that you know, there's not. I don't think that anyone um, who um, was involved in, in the campaigning, certainly not the HTP politicians who are who receive jail every day by going out door knocking by wearing Kurdish colours, do feel or should feel kind of you know, embarrassed or foolish about it, engaging in this parliamentary process. Um, and you know they know very well um, what the risks are. They know very well the limitations of what it can achieve. And the, the, the move, the, this movement has survived and will continue to survive in the breach um, and is very capable of coping, you know, use, using the repression that it's faced, for example, in Rojava, in Turkish region of Kurdistan to encourage a new generation to 
work together against that repression to overcome their differences and so on. So, you, you know, the, the road ahead was always long, maybe it's longer now, but that's, um, yeah, we knew that already. Yeah. Um, I've, i I'm very happy that you, um, that you turned to resilience and like, you know, kind of a, maybe not positivity, but a more positive outlook on it. Cause that was actually what I wanted to ask next is, um, for with everything looking so you know dire continuously all the time i don't want to i mean we're get, we're we're nearing the end of the episode and i just had simply you know two last uh, uh things i wanted to ask you this first being then um how do then you know kurdish uh groups on the ground or leftist groups on the ground that are connected with kurdish movements um how do they you know build this resilience because it is incredibly daunting to have every i mean this ever changing you know government around you that then is is locking up people left and right you said that then the what uh, uh, you know sentences that are that are un- completely unrealistic for just the most basic of support um how 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 do they then i mean obviously you know you know it's it's simply more than just having a good attitude um how do then like like um how do they uh find obviously resilience in the sense of you know maybe just like you know there's, I guess, like the, the 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 metaphysical aspect of it, but like the true, actual, like living politic thing of like what is stuff that then kind of like through all this that we see get done. I mean, I think it's still incredible. I mean, I I I um like weirdly in all this, one of the most motivating things ever has been seeing you know institutes like the HDP still try to exist no matter what that they that they really do try to form. Uh, I I believe uh, I don't know if it is what's the other part Yazid. Um, yeah, the initial Soul Party, the Green Left Party. Yeah. Yes, uh, they've kind of taken up then this banner as well to at least in Germany uh, of being kind of representative of of, of also to like the Kurdish movement. Um, I get I don't know all the details of this, but still like there is still always movements appearing and, and ever changing things that we always see, and there is always at least regardless of how dire the situation is, there is a hope that. I don't understand, but it motivates me and I appreciate it. Uh, like how, yeah. how, how, how well, I think, yeah, I, th- I mean, I think there is, um, I think there is a metaphysical aspect to it. I think that, you know, that's worth thinking about and that is significant in the political analysis of, of the Kurdish movement, um, in some aspects. Um, and it, it, it runs all the way through you now. So kind of, I, I think on the one end, you know, if you look at the sort of how does the, that was their analysis and approach to, to history and what it has in common, for example, with a Marxist analysis of history is the ability to say to people, the sort of the fact that you are so alienated and the fact that you are repressed will produce a political response. And we are that response. You, we manifest that. And, you know, they, that's how they view sort of, you know, history in, in its longest sense, but also the kind of history of the, the Kurdish struggle and the Kurds kind of as a political class, they are com- confident in saying, yes, you know, we stand here at a sort of crucial time um, in, in history. We stand geopolitically, um, we're crucial also. Um, and the sort of the fact of the attacks on us are themselves proof positive of, you know, in a, in a sense, this growing alienation, which will produce a response. And Zina and that kind of follows all the way through to at the other end of the wedge. I don't know the fact that when someone... Dies uh, in pursuit of the political goals of, of the Kurdish movement. They're going. They're kind of accepting that, you know, and, and valorizing of that. And so, I think there is this metaphysical aspect to their approach in terms of what they say about um, how they analyze history, in terms of what they say to the Kurdish people, particularly about their own role, but also what they say about the role of Turkey, and also what they say about the kind of juncture that Turkish society is coming to as being pivotal for the region and this region being pivotal for the world and this era being pivotal. So there is that kind of aspect. Um, but then it's also something very pragmatic um, and kind of, yeah, as you said, and I think that kind of understanding and that sort of historical approach then equips people to continue this. Yeah. So you, yeah, you mentioned um, that um, the HDP um, who have for some time been the main legal political party um, representing pro-Kurdish forces in Turkey are about to be banned. If they are banned, that'll be the eighth pro-Kurdish party in a row that's been banned, at which point you might think people would be like, well, obviously this isn't working. We're going to give up and get our Kalashnikovs and go to the mountains. Um, but, um, of course, you know, they're willing, they've already begun the process of passing on the mantle to the Green Left Party, the Yushal Soul Party, who will continue until quite possibly they're banned and another party comes on and so on, which, yeah, you kind of, I think this... Um, sense of you know the the kind of political struggle being so um 
existential kind of gives people the ability to keep going and to see themselves not looking at this election or that election, but thinking about, you know, pushing toward a transformation of society, which is operating as best it can, um, which often is not that much on different levels from the neighbourhood up to the parliament on the one hand, to Rojava across the border on the other hand, um, to the, um, yeah, a guerrilla fight, which is happening in the mountains on the other. And I think, yeah, I mean, there's a lot I could say about this. And maybe I think the other thing to say would be that um, what happened in Rojava, I think, kind of gave a lot of Kurdish people, particularly, but progressive people in, in Turkey, hope. And, you know, they yeah, support that is certainly popular among, um, yeah, people who uh, were not previously engaged with the, with the, the Kurdish movement. And, yeah, and kind of what I think people forget a little bit about that is, it was so kind of unexpected, actually, and for, for the Kurdish movement as well, that, you know, they thought, you know, if anywhere we are able to put these ideas into practice on a mass scale, maybe in Turkish Kurdistan, possibly in one of the other parts of Kurdistan, but no one was really looking at or thinking about Syrian Kurdistan, the smallest of the four occupied regions, the, the most impoverished, um, one just faced for, you know, very particular forms of repression, but then... You know, everything kind of changed overnight on the basis, it's true, of many decades um, of organising. So, yeah, I think this yeah, almost metaphysical quality um, in a strange or kind of paradox way equips people to be very pragmatic and, you know, willing to go to the Turkish parliament and willing to deal with that system. On the other hand, I don't know, Rajava, willing to go to Raqqa and work with, you know, very conservative tribal sheikhs who might have supported ISIS last year and probably would again next year if they got the chance. And it kind of equips people you know, for all levels, from, you know, grandmothers and villages up to, you know, sort of senior political representatives to place themselves in this wider, broader context. Yeah, and um, also just, I mean, like kind of tying into that before we uh, go was that also, um, how is then the response from... Um, like how, how, how has international support then been received? And it is, I mean, like it is been, I mean, uh, uh, internet, international support, not response, international support from then other leftist groups. Obviously we saw, of course, peak during, uh, uh, Rojava, of course. Uh, but there's still a lot of, um, you know, solidarity that then we see throughout, I mean, Germany being a big one with then supporting the, um, the, the, the Green Left Party as well. I've, I've seen a lot of activism then done there. Um, how has then that been received? Like, how, how have, like, networks been kind of continued internationally with, within then that of, like, the, 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 like, kind of greater left and their support of this? Like, obvious, I mean, like, I think it's clear to say that then it maybe has, like, died down a little bit after Rojava has been out of, like, the main eye. But still, like... Um, how do then, how do these groups then kind of, you know, see then their uh, uh, influence is the wrong, I guess, yeah, a bit of influence, but then, um, yeah, how is that relationship between other leftist groups and say then, uh, ha- has it been strengthened? Has it been, has it been, uh, you know, has actually then the government worked and like, has the repression been working? Has it, are we just kind of in like a, a you know, kind of an unknown period currently until the elections are over. Um, yeah, I mean, how 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 is? Well, yeah, that? I think I think uh, yeah, this this international solidarity is yeah, it's, it's very important for the Kurdish movement, which is very open, very outward looking, very internationally minded, or can be anyway. Not always, of course, but um, strives to be. Let's say a sort of outward looking movement. It kind of linked to what we were mentioning about this sort of more existential broader analysis and approach of the Kurdish movement that it to see itself as offering something to people on the international left, which is absent from, I don't know, other uh, organized um, kind of radical leftist alternatives, um, absent perhaps from other national liberation struggles, sometimes not always. Um, and so that I think has facilitated the, the, yeah, this kind of openness and yeah, they, you know, they put a great value on it. You see that very clearly in Rajava. You know, I don't know, I would you know, sometimes be translating for, uh, people who'd come from the West to meet with um, officials there. And for me, I was often a bit like, okay, you know, we've got the group of, I don't know, scratchy leftists from Frankfurt, and then, but there's, you know, the senator from Belgium or whatever here. In my opinion, we should probably go and speak to the senator, but actually, people were very much willing, you're very willing to do both. I mean, you gave a lot of importance to speaking with everybody and 
Yeah, and I've seen that also from the um, representatives from the HDP when they've been working in Europe, and I've heard all you know similar things about how they operate on the campaign trail in Turkey, where as well um, they've just been joined by um, yeah a lot of people who went out, people from the UK, uh, where I'm from, but all over the world, all over Europe to follow along, uh, watch and monitor the electoral process, but also to kind of learn from their approach as well. And so I think yeah, they they, they put a great value on it. Um, and I think, you know, yeah, the, of course, this comes from being a kind of wholly illegal movement effectively for so long. And there's now this kind of a new, there's always this novel sensation, you know, that for all certainly was in the time of the war against ISIS that the Kurds, people had actually heard of them and they knew what they were about. And they had this kind of day in the sun in the liberal press where they were kind of presented in a, in a certain way. And, you know, to some people were these kind of Muslim killing um, basically Western heroes and some people with these like idealized leftist um, visionaries and the truth, yeah, I think is neither of those things, but this is kind of brought, yeah, brought with it, you know, more kind of institutional engagement and support. And, you know, I think they're happy about that, but they also have recognized the limitations of that and that it only goes so far and that, you know, 10 years on, Rojava remains so impoverished, so attacked, so threatened. Um, the electoral process in, in Turkey, for example, they're kind of, the official response from Europe was, oh, well, these elections might not be fair, but they were free. Um, and which is, you know, such a highly, clearly a kind of meaningless response, you know, and if this opposition has been jailed eight times in a row, if, um, you know, about 4,000 of their uh, party members are currently in jail, in what sense was this a the free election? It means nothing. And so because of the, the limitations that they recognize in the institutional political engagement with the West, then of course they, they value and they, um, stress, um, continued uh, international solidarity um, and support also. Well, um, one last thing I wanted to ask then is um, what then are ways that then that, um, I mean, mentioning a solidarity, what are then things, I guess, that then uh, we then as, I, I, there's very rarely, I think, instances where we have on the show, I think we can actually do like a call to action thing. Um, but how can, you know, we still in the West support then these movements? I mean, because it is very hard right now and it could not, I mean, it can be possibly getting a lot harder depending on when this episode releases. So we probably is still going to be Erdogan in power. Um, like what are then ways that then we kind of is, whether it be European, Western, whatever, or what have left us anywhere? I mean, maybe there's people who listen to the show in the Philippines. I have no idea. Um you know, uh, what is, uh, uh, what are then ways that then I guess that people could, could, you know, uh, uh, be in, in, in some way showing solidarity? Um, I know that that's a big yeah. question to ask, of course, but I feel that then this is one that then probably uh, would, uh, knows uh, how to then accept support with one way or the other. Yeah. So I think again, it's, well, yeah, um, this is going to link to the fact that there's, the government has these different aspects we've been talking about. There's Rojava, there's this parliamentary party, there's civil society stuff, there's kind of open warfare also with the Turkish government in other regions. So there's a kind of range of important steps that kind of need to be taken that people can take. I'll mention a couple of things. Yeah, firstly, kind of on the more institutional level, um, it's really important, I think, for political parties and parliaments in Europe to be um, taking steps to stop this pro-Kurdish HDP party from being banned and to, for there to be more kind of rule of law. There are, you know, 11 MPs from this party currently in jail and they have sister parties all over Europe. They're, you know, various leftist parliamentary or left, left-wing parliamentary parties. So governments and parliaments should be speaking up about that, you know, just purely from the basis of respect for parliamentary democracy. That's very important. Um there are other important issues if people are looking to kind of raise institutional awareness. Yeah, perhaps the key issue would be yeah, around this criminalization of the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, which is a sort of has been a key issue and has been raised more and more in European parliaments, um, um, in European courts as well. Um, that, you know, actually there's no reason for this movement to be considered a terror organization whatsoever because it doesn't commit terror attacks. It's just, you know, in, in a civil war in which it conducts itself according to international norms. It's a signatory to the Geneva Convention, and it's just because Turkey says so they're terrorists. And so this year, what it's called the D-List PKK campaign is something that's being raised a lot on the institutional level in Europe as well. This is very important. And then, um, yeah, on the other side of things, of course, I think, as I mentioned a bit at the end, it's the 
simply important, I think, for the coach movement that, you know, more people know about them, know what they stand for, know that perhaps they are saying something a bit different to just a kind of another quote-unquote national liberation struggle or another um, human rights issue, but that they're trying to do something different, trying to build a, an alternative and see whether that's learning more about um, you know, Java, learning more about the approach um, of the movement. You know, I think they're very keen for people to do that, engage with it. And I think personally it's important for that, both to understand it and to critique it. And, you know, there are issues with this movement as well. And I think it's very productive and healthy for them to be in conversation. Yeah, I don't know yet. Yeah, I know there was recently kind of first discussion actually with, um, yeah, militant leftist groups in the Philippines and the um, Kurdish movement um, that happened, I think, last week. Um, and they're very interested to engage with all sorts of, I don't know, civil society movements, women's movements, indigenous movements, leftist movements uh, all across the world, most simply perhaps in Europe, but by no means uh, just in Europe. So, yeah, but I think just, yeah, that kind of engagement from the grassroots up to the level of, you know, writing to your MP or senator or asking for a meeting or whatever it might be is, is very important. And, yeah, supporting the Kurdish Red Crescent on the humanitarian basis as well. Okay, great. Um, before you leave, Matt, uh, where can our listeners find you? Um, you can find me on the internet by searching for my name. Um, <laughs> I will shock you to say, yeah, Matt Broomfield, um, and I publish not just but a lot about the Kurdish issue. I also have a book of poetry, uh, Brave Little Sternums, poems from Rojava, uh, which I wrote during the three years that I spent living in Rojava, and also give some background about the revolution, um, which you can, again, find by... Googling it for me. Great. Uh, Matt Broomfield, thank you so much once again for coming on. Uh, and, My pleasure. Um, for our listeners, uh, nothing to announce except for keep your eyes peeled for a Hamburg show that we're in the process of planning. And um, we will see you all next week for uh, the regular episode. Take care. <laughs>